This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's worth remembering that we are supposed to have an election in around 12 months' time. As those local government polls draw closer, I think it's safe to say that the initial unity of purpose between the ruling party and those in opposition, remember the president sharing a platform with all of his political rivals, will continue to unravel which is probably what we should have expected. After all, the coronavirus is reshaping every single aspect of our lives, and party politics and elections will be no different. Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. It's brought to you by Kaya FM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. I'm John Perlman. In our fourth episode, how will the pandemic change our party political landscape in years to come? Will it benefit some parties and weaken others? And could it change, perhaps in positive ways, what voters demand of those seeking a place in government? Joining me to discuss this, we have two guests. Dr. Sitembile Mbete is a lecturer in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me, John. Richard Calland is an Associate Professor in Public Law at the University of Cape Town. Professor Calland, great to have you as well. Thank you very much for having me on. Let's set the scene with a couple of things. As the pandemic has tightened its grip, opposition political parties have been increasingly critical of the government and the president. Here's DA leader John Steenhuizen. South Africa tuned in last night in the hope that our president would show us the way forward. But an hour later, he had barely said anything. He told us his government had often got it wrong these past seven weeks, which is true. He told us that South Africans have played their part and made enormous sacrifices, which we know. But when it came to the part we were waiting for, the urgent opening of our economy so that our people can get back to work, South Africans were left bitterly disappointed. What President Ramaphosa announced last night was simply not enough. Remaining in hard lockdown until at least the end of May and possibly even longer is not good enough. Remaining imprisoned by a night curfew enforced by armed soldiers is not good enough. Remaining subjected to a slew of irrational, petty regulations that do nothing but kill business and turn decent people into criminals is not good enough. And having all of these decisions passed down by some secretive subgroup of the executive with no clearly defined authority is certainly not good enough. EFF leader Julius Malima has also had strong words for the ruling party and for the captains of industry. The current corona pandemic has demonstrated that the private sector cannot be relied upon for the provision of basic services for all our people, particularly health services. Big business, whether black or white, is not loyal to any nation and does not care about the people. They are only loyal to profits. The coronavirus has demonstrated that big capitalists from Stellenbosch and Oppenheimers are not friends of government and are not at all defined by patriotism. The patriotism of big business in South Africa and everywhere in the world is towards profit maximization, not towards a people. That is why even in these times of need, big businesses continue to be self-seeking and their contribution comes nowhere close to the minerals, wealth and cheap labor of the people they have exploited over the years. 
The coronavirus has demonstrated that politicians from the ruling party cannot be trusted with the lives of our people. That is why they steal and loot food even in the darkest hour of need. They distribute food and water in partisan way and worse at a time through functional means during these difficult times. When we are supposed to put aside our differences and unite against the invisible enemy. Dr. Mbete, as we deal with these twin catastrophes of a health crisis and an economic collapse, is there any way at all in which the ruling party, the African National Congress, can come out of this anything but weaker? Well, John, I think that, you know, moments of crisis tend to favor incumbents. Because when there is a crisis, the um, society that really wants leadership, that wants somebody to be getting things done, uh, that wants uh, to feel guided through the crisis, tends to rally around uh, whoever is in leadership um, at the time. And there can be, as we've seen here in South Africa, but elsewhere, um, a real surge of kind of nationalist feeling and unity uh, as people want to gather together and express solidarity to get through the crisis together. So initially, I think uh, we saw with this crisis that it really strengthened um, the ANC uh, and the ANC in government. So it strengthened uh, President Sir Ramaphosa's position um, as he was seen to be taking leadership and to be uh, leading also in a very... uh, collaborative way, so including opposition parties, um, and he seemed like he had a great deal of legitimacy uh, at the start of this crisis, which I think is to be expected. I think that what we've seen now is, you know, now that we are well and truly in the middle of the crisis, is some of that dissipate and uh, and some of the shine uh, begin to wear off uh, the president and the ANC government. We've seen it particularly in uh, people's responses and unhappiness with some of the regulations. But we've also seen that uh, this crisis hasn't taken away or removed the things that we were speaking about um, over the last few years. So we've seen the corruption in the distribution of food parcels. We've yes. seen the state you know, and the public service not to be able to to respond to distributing uh, the grants, uh, the 350 rand for the people that need it, uh, or the SASA system not working uh, to give the extra grants to the pensioners uh, and to child grant holders. And so, um, you know, what the crisis is now doing is exacerbating uh, the, the the failures uh, and the and the real um, deficiencies uh, of uh, the ANC in government and of different parts uh, of the state. And so in that respect, I think that, you know, the, the crisis then uh, is a threat uh, to the ANC in that way um, and weakening its position. Of course, what we haven't seen from opposition parties to actually follow that through is any rallying or, or mobilization that seems to be strengthening the position of the opposition parties in relation to the ANC. So even if the ANC um, could come out weaker from this, yes. it doesn't seem clear or obvious that opposition parties are going to come out stronger. Uh, the DA has made some mishaps in the way that it has responded to the crisis, and we've seen the EFF sort of sitting back and taking a wait-and-see approach uh, to how it responds. So, so Richard Calland, I mean... Uh the same question, but framed slightly differently. 
What have opposition parties been doing in this time that suggests they might gain political advantage from this the next time we, we go to the ballot box, if anything at all? John, I agree with uh, Dr. Mbeti that at a time of big national crisis like this, the spotlight tends very much to be on the executive and therefore on the ruling party. So what that does is to crowd out and to sideline uh, op oppositional uh, parties and factions even. So, for example, within the ANC, one has seen that the Ace Magashuli fight back faction to sort of give it a title, has really been muted by this uh, crisis. Uh, similarly, for opposition parties, it creates a real strate strategic dilemma. Do they try and react to the moment? Do they try and force their way into the spotlight so that they're not forgotten? Or do they play a longer game? And the way I put it in a couple of columns is, do they, instead of trying to win the war, do they wait and try and win the peace? Uh, and of course, from the lessons of history, there are many examples of kind of wartime leaders who have done a, a good job or even a sort of historically great job, such as Winston Churchill in Britain during the Second World War, who then lose the election immediately after the uh, crisis has dissipated, has ended. Why? Because people then expect a new vision. They expect a new world. They expect something different. And I think the, the challenge for opposition parties in South Africa and probably for the ruling party is to prepare themselves as much for the peace as for the current crisis. Now, to return to your question, uh, first of all, the DA, I think, has lost sight of that fact. So they uh, initially uh, were arguing, as you know, for a so-called smart lockdown, very much in line with the government's own position. But they flip-flopped very suddenly about two weeks ago and started demanding a hard exit, which was really, I think, a kind of opportunistic attempt to jump onto the fact that people were getting restless, understandably, and were yearning for greater freedom. And I think that didn't go well for them. It may have played well with their, their base, their kind of middle-class privileged elite base, but I think in terms of their longer-term prospects, people will remember that. As to the EFF, they have been very quiet and at times surprisingly constructive in their positioning. But it was only within a few minutes of the end of uh, Ramaphosa's uh, address to the nation on Friday, on Sunday night, that they started to adopt a very different position, which I think is their long-term strategy. And that is that they are going to try and blame, blame Ramaphosa for all of the COVID-19 deaths that accrue from now on. Their line since Sunday has been, government is abandoning the poor to the threat of the pandemic. Whether that works, whether the government, whether the people, the electorate accept that in the longer term is impossible to say now. Much, I think, will hinge, as uh, again, Dr. Mbeti says, much will hinge on the extent to which the government can prove itself to be up to the task now of managing this, this double crisis of public health on the one hand and economic recovery on the other. John Pullman is exploring the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the trajectory of political and socio-economic development. Dr. Mbete, I mean, let's take a step back and ask a, a very basic question. Will we be able to have an election? Well, there's very little clarity about that. We know that the IEC uh, has said, has requested that uh, the election be held later in the year uh, than was originally planned. So instead of having the election uh, in the middle of the year between June and August, uh, that uh, they anticipate that they'll actually need to have the election later on, probably November or December, because the kind of planning that would have started now uh, 
of having uh, voter registration, for example, and voter education uh, and uh, completing the demarcation process, uh, also completing um, registration of political parties or initiating registration of political parties that hasn't been able to start uh, because of the lockdown and because of the response to COVID-19. And so they've already requested uh, that the election take place towards the end of next year instead of the middle of the year. We may even see that pushed out further uh, depending on uh, the progress of the virus as we move towards the peak in August, um, the the peak that the the health department uh, is predicting um, in August of 2020. So, you know, we hope that we'll have an election in 2021, uh, but, you know, it could be pushed out to 2022 depending on what happens with the virus and also certainly depending on what happens with the economic crisis. We've heard uh, from uh, SARS that uh, they expect that government, that they are going to have a shortfall, a significant shortfall in tax collection this year, I think of about 250 billion uh, rand. Um, And we know that elections are hugely expensive to put on. Uh, And so... There's going to be a lot of questions, really, about not only if the election takes place, but if it does take place, what form that is. Richard Callan, you spoke about the war scenario and the peace scenario, and I just want to engage with you a little bit on that. It seems to me that this isn't entirely a war in which everybody agrees on what should be done in the battle. And to to make that point further and then get your response... The lines of division around particular regulations, particular courses of action are very, very familiar ones, it would seem. And I'm just wondering if in some ways the arguments that are taking place about the government's response are in many ways the arguments about politics and about government's competence or lack of, for example. So, John, you're absolutely right to draw attention to the fact that the wartime kind of analogy is is a bit clumsy because, of course, this is not a war, first of all. Secondly, uh, as you suggest, there isn't a clearly identified common enemy on which everybody can agree. Because on the one hand, yes, people accept that the pandemic is a threat, but actually there are different degrees of uh, extent to which some political protagonists regard it as a real threat. So when the DA, for example, flip-flopped its position recently, it started to put out a line that, well, you know, this is really just a bad flu. Uh, It has to wash through the the society uh, and we have to build up, in effect, uh, herd immunity. Now, that line is very offensive to people who regard the population as vulnerable and who are concerned that working class South Africans may be far more vulnerable, partly because of other health vulnerabilities that they may have, um, so-called comorbidities, and that that therefore is a callous disregard for their health care and other needs. What that does, I think, is reveal kind of the ideological aspect of the pandemic. It is political. And the response to a pandemic, like any policy challenge or crisis, will inevitably, in the end, pull out the kind of ideological biases or worldviews that underlie the particular political person or protagonist's position. And I think that's what started to reveal itself globally, but also now in South Africa. Sitembile, let's talk a little bit about the voters and how expectations might shift between now and whenever it is that we have another election. For example, if you take an area like uh, Puta de Chaba, people have seen that the water they've been begging for for years suddenly gets delivered quite quickly. 
Is there a, a real possibility, and I could be over-optimistic here, that voters might actually raise their game in terms of what they're prepared to accept as uh, credible promises and valid excuses? Certainly. Um, I think that, you know, what Prof Callant has said about this crisis as political uh, and the resp- and the different options for responding to the crisis as political, I think is crucial. So much of the narrative around this uh you know, two months ago, was that this is a health crisis and we need health solutions and it's about the science uh, and politics isn't involved. But we're seeing as we get deeper into the crisis and also deal with the fallout uh, of, of, of the crisis that so much is going to hinge on political solutions and on the different ideological positions that are competing. Uh, but besides then the ideological positions that are competing, there's also uh, a lot that's been built up around expectations of just flat out delivery and competence uh, of the state. And as you say, uh, what's emerged in the past uh, two months is that many of the issues that the state was saying were unresolvable or these were really big service delivery problems that they were going to take time uh, to fix were resolved in a matter of weeks. People who did not have water for three years suddenly had water um, and and water tanks. Uh, You saw... um, you know, around food delivery, uh, people who have been growing hungry, uh, suddenly uh, the state has the ability to distribute food. So I think that it has definitely raised the expectations uh, of citizens uh, from the government and what they expect from their political leadership. And I think that we've seen this particularly in the response to uh, ward councillors' failures to distribute food, uh, that people are not just taking uh, that lying down as they normally would do perhaps uh, but uh, but are actually acting on it and being hugely critical and I think that what it's done is that certainly with the ANC um, is that it has uh, it, it's another issue that is putting fear into them uh, about what expect what people actually expect and also just how much the ANC has failed uh, in different parts of the country um, in, in, in ensuring the well-being uh, of people. Whether or not that automatically results in a boost for the opposition parties, though, um, is a big question. And that's why, uh, as Prof Callan said, I find the EFF strategy really interesting. Um, because I think that what they're going to need to do is to find a way to capitalize uh, on uh, the the unhappiness uh, with the ANC or with people saying, well, you know, we can see that the ANC can do it, but they need a bit of pressure, so maybe we'll vote for somebody else to put that pressure onto them. Um, and those are the dynamics that we're going to need to be watching for in the coming year. So, Richard Callan, I mean, if the government fails to deal with this in a way that people consider satisfactory and it's a monumental crisis that has stymied most governments around the planet – why would voters punish this failure more than any others in the past? I mean, we've had uh, calamitous, uh, cala- we've had calamitously low levels of economic growth. Uh, we had hundreds of thousands of South Africans dying in the AIDS pandemic, including many children. This scenario has run and run. Is this one any different? Either because it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, or because it is itself inherently different. 
So it was the question that was sort of surging through my mind as this conversation has unfolded over the last few minutes. Why would this be any different? After all, the government has over 25 years in some areas uh, failed miserably. In other areas, of course, in general, the welfare state, uh, it has succeeded uh, admirably well over a period of time. And I think we need to keep a balanced picture uh, in mind. So that balanced picture may, in fact, play itself out through this particular crisis. On the one hand, people may uh, detect, if this is what happens, that the public health care system in general, hospitals in particular, are unable to cope with the crisis because they are not properly uh, equipped uh, and they're underfunded, under-resourced, and they don't have the in infrastructure. On the other hand, they may find a government that is going the extra mile to help people at a time of crisis. Now, none of us can now predict, I think, easily how the public will react to that. And the one difference here, of course, is that it will be very stark in terms of numbers just how the crisis is playing out, because unfortunately there will be a death rate. Uh, and, a, and every day we will learn of the number of people who have succumbed to this pernicious disease. And that number, uh, I think, will focus attention, it will focus minds, and it may deliver a form of accountability for government performance that nothing else in the last 26 years has quite matched. Sitembele, we, we, we heard uh, Richard Calland express a view on what this means for the internal politics of the African National Congress. Your thoughts? Ooh, well, you know, we saw from the start of the crisis that the kind of internal uh, factional politics that had occupied so much uh, of uh, the political discourse from clearly from, from NASREC, but also from last year's uh, um, general election, all of that seemed to dissipate. And we weren't talking about the different factions within the ANC. Uh, we weren't hearing a lot from um, the ANC Secretary General, Ace um, Mahashule, or from people that are seen to be part of his faction. And it seemed as though uh, President Ramaphosa could just lead um, as the President uh, of the Republic, but also of the party. But we are hearing a lot more uh, from uh, from uh, Ace Mahashule and from Je we've heard more from Jesse Duarte in response to uh, what seems to me actually it's been a manufactured um, tension that's being that's being spoken about between President Ramaphosa and Minister of Cocteau. Um um, and, you know, given that the ANC is in the process of preparing for its National General Council that is meant to be held now uh, in, in, in June uh, and has been postponed indefinitely, I think that we're going to see those uh, factional battles um, emerging again uh, in the run-up to, to the NGC, particularly as there is um, unhappiness or disagreement uh, about how to open up the economy, um, especially also when there will be the temptation for to apportion blame uh, for the deaths that are inevitably uh, going to increase uh, in the coming months, uh, as Pop Callant has said. And so I think that we will see uh, the temptation, I imagine, uh, within different factions of the ANC to start to politicize this crisis, especially because we're going towards a local government election yes. 
and there'll be a lot of contestation about who gets deployed at what level and who gets makes up um, the different PR lists of the municipalities, uh, who gets um, put up as candidates for different ward committees. That contestation, I think, we can expect to play out um, in in relation to the crisis in the coming months. So let's, we're at the midway point of our conversation, so I'm going to ask you both the same question. Let's talk about an election 15, 16 months from now. And, and Richard Callan, with you, with you first, give us your thoughts on the prospects of, of, of the following, the ANC, the DA, the EFF, and then anyone else in the remaining parties that you think might have a particularly strong surge or a particularly strong decline. So, John, assuming we're, we're confining this, this very difficult sort of uh, crystal ball glazing uh, exercise to the local government elections, which are due to take place at some point next year, yes. probably later now in the year than the middle of the year. Um, first of all, one has to say that already before COVID-19, those local government elections had greater uncertainty infused within them than, say, the national and provincial elections of last year. The reason being that politics at a local level is more fluid. That is why, for example, around the country, there are more coalition arrangements, there are more hung uh, councils than there are in uh, at the provincial and national level. So it does give an opportunity, and it's partly because of the slightly different electoral system uh, in municipal elections, does give an opportunity for smaller parties to chip away uh, at the support of bigger parties. And I would expect that to continue. And indeed, there is probably an opportunity for local politicians, if they step up during this crisis and show that they really care for their communities, that they can help deliver the necessary uh, services for uh, handling the pandemic at local level, they may well be rewarded, whether they are attached to a big party, a smaller party, or indeed, if they are running as independent uh, candidates. So I'm afraid to say, John, that's a very long way of saying I yes. don't know. That's all right. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> it's a very interesting way of saying you don't know. So do continue. So I think, but if you if you were sort of to hold a gun, the proverbial gun at my head, I, I would think uh, that uh, the ANC will overall uh, continue as it has at the last two local government elections, continue to lose support uh, despite its strong performance last year uh, under Ramaphosa's leadership at the national level, I think it will st- continue to, to lose support. Uh, whether the DA can pick that up or whether that support tends to drift more towards the EFF, I think that is the more likely scenario, that the EFF will continue to, to, uh, to gain support. But having said that, again, yet another caveat, John, last year was the EFF's big opportunity and they flunked it. They didn't really get the surge uh, the exponential rise towards 20% that they expected and hoped for and needed, I think. So I think, uh, you know, it's, a, it's going to be a huge opportunity for the EFF, probably their last chance, I would say. And if they don't have a big surge, if they don't find themselves in government in, in, in a significant number of municipalities around the country, uh, even as, as a, a partner in a coalition, I think that could be the, the end of the EFF. And, and give us your thoughts, uh, Sitem Bile, you've, you've had a chance to peer into your own crystal ball. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think a big thing to watch will be the, West, will be the Western Cape. Uh, at least currently, 
see in the way in which uh, the DA in government in the Western Cape is handling the crisis. Yes, they may speak about uh, that they're testing more, that they're doing more tracing. But the reality is that the virus is sweeping through um, the poorer parts of Cape Town uh, and the Cape Flats far more than it's doing uh, in equivalent areas in the rest of the country. Uh, and a lot of the way in which the, the DA in government has been handling uh, this crisis comes across as really callous um, and not caring uh, for poorer people, especially when it's then linked to the kinds of statements we've heard coming from Helen Zilla and from others in the DA leadership that we need to just build herd immunity. Some people will die, but it won't be everyone and then we'll be fine. Uh, and so I think that the DA can expect to suffer quite a a, a big dent in its support, uh, particularly in the Cape Town metro, uh, as a result of this crisis, if people come to feel that uh, the that the government left them uh, to, to, to die from the crisis and, and wasn't as caring uh, in supporting vulnerable communities as it could have been and as it should have been. So I think that that's going to be really interesting. Who gains from the DA's loss in the Western Cape is a big question. Will it be the ANC? Will it be good? Will it be Patricia DeLille's party, whose uh, leadership uh, has been very vocal in criticising uh, the um, the decisions of the DA government uh, in the Western Cape and picking out uh, the flaws and the arguments that they've made. We also know that the DA in the Western Cape is seen with the Strandfontein um, settlement for homeless people uh, that then was... Um, completely dismantled and homeless people put back out onto the street uh, whether they have COVID-19 or not. Um, the way in which uh, the, the, the party has dealt with, with, with poor people and what they've tried to put through uh, in terms of bylaws to police uh, homeless people uh, have really dented uh, the view of the party um, and I think that's going to be really interesting yes. to watch particularly how the DA does amongst coloured communities. And then of course whether the ESS can grow its, you know, the ESS won more um, PR seats than, uh, than ward seats uh, in many places in the country. It didn't win many ward councils. Um, and that points to a deficiency in terms of its grassroots uh, organizing and support. So whether or not the ESS can win wards in order to be able to win a larger councils, I think is going to be the big question of 2021. So let, let me get back on my optimism bicycle. I know the exercise hours are still between six and nine, but here we go. R Richard Calland, is there any chance we might get better politicians out of this? And by that, I mean, do, does a crisis demand of politicians that you show more substance, that you show more integrity, that you show uh, a greater openness to other people's ideas? Or does it bring out the smallness in politicians? My thoughts on the last election, for example, was on the shallowness of the debates that we tended to hear. And I'm wondering if out of this we might get a bit more depth of thinking, uh, a greater uh, a choice of, of, of interesting and, 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 and doable ideas. So, John, I think my answer to that question is, is, first of all, that what history suggests is that when you have a massive shock to the system, whether it be war or pandemic, what tends to emerge is some kind of new society. But that depends very much on whether the, the, the key players within that society are able to conjure up 
a new vision of that society that is compelling, that is realistic, uh, uh, and which captures the mood, the zeitgeist, so to speak, and which uh, attains the support of, a, of a, a social consensus. People will be looking for something different globally, uh, as well as uh, in South Africa. I think there's general recognition that the pandemic is yet another symptom of global fragility, that humanity has got itself into a, a real pickle here. Uh, climate change, of course, is yet another example of that. So what is required is a new paradigm in terms of how humanity runs its economies and how it manages its resources. What is needed now, and this is, and, and these are the politicians who I think will be rewarded uh, as we emerge from COVID-19, are those political leaders who can articulate that vision and do so in a compelling way, in a way that touches people's lives and which captures the zeitgeist. That, I think, is the imperative for all societies across the world as we emerge from COVID-19. Of course, it remains to be seen whether uh, in South Africa we have such people uh, or whether it will require people outside of politics to form that vision and to, in a sense, impose it upon uh, our political classes. And the election next year will be, I suppose, the first opportunity for that kind of exercise to play itself through the system. Of course, that, that Sitembile Mbete would be expressed through election manifestos, uh, the framing of issues and so on. What would be the dangers to South Africa if the, if the next couple of elections were very much single issue elections? Because one concern Concern is that as we in the health space focus on COVID-19, uh, concerns around uh, primary health care, HIV, AIDS, TB get left behind. Uh, more broadly, as we focus on COVID-19, issues of uh, economic transformation uh, and, and, and global warming tend to go on the back burner as well. What are the risks to us if we don't address all the issues that do need addressing each time we go to the polls? Look, I think that the risk of uh, next year's election being a single issue election around COVID-19 uh, is pretty minimal just because of how many of the other political and socioeconomic issues the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted, right? Yes. So, uh, as you said earlier, that yes, this is a health crisis, but it also has become uh, and will continue to be an economic crisis. It's also become a crisis around uh, water infrastructure uh, because and, and, and other basic sanitation issues because of how um, you prevent the virus by washing your hands and how do you wash your hands regularly if there's no steady water supply? It's become a crisis about education and education provision uh, because of uh, the differentiation really between different classes uh, of the kids that have been able to continue with their studies during the lockdown and those that haven't. It's become an issue about the broader health system because the comorbidities of COVID-19 are lifestyle issues, uh, are life, what so-called uh, lifestyle disease diseases or non-communicable diseases, hypertension, diabetes, uh, which are diseases around the kinds of foods that people are eating, the kind of life that they're living and the kind of stress that they have. Right. COVID-19 has become a crisis around public transport, right? Because uh, public, our taxi system, our trains uh, are potentially uh, a real place for the virus to spread. And so I think that the nature of this COVID-19 crisis means that because it is highly highlighting so many different issues, um, it will not just 
be a single issue um, election. People, you know, it'll touch on the same issues of service delivery um, that we have spoken about in, in many elections. I do agree, though, that the one area that will perhaps fall by the wayside is climate change, uh, but that will require linking uh, the climate change issues to real bread and butter issues that people are facing around water provision, for example. Uh, I think we will continue to see electricity provision, for example, being being a big uh, being a big issue. Yes. Um, and, and all the limitations in terms of that. So I'm not uh, too concerned that we're going to have uh, a single-issue election. I think that what we're going to see, though, uh, as typically happens in the local government election, is that the local government issues are going to be conflated with provincial and national government issues. Um, and so we're going to see uh, national issues dominate the conversation uh, in next year's election in a very similar way that we've seen uh, in previous local government elections because people don't really make the separation between what the responsibilities of local government are and the responsibilities of national. Uh, Professor Callan, one thing that really interests me is political style, in, particularly in the context of our constitutional democracy. And I, when you take a structure like the National Command Council, some people bristle at that because they don't like being commanded and they feel it's too authoritarian. I would imagine there's at least an equal number of South Africans who think, great, we wish they'd take command on more things, on health. On, uh, uh, we wish they'd take command on more things like the economy, like joblessness, like the water shortage. What messages do you think political parties are picking up and how do you think it might alter their style? Um, might some think the strong man-woman style of leadership is actually quite popular? Well, John, I think it goes back to our earlier conversation about how ideology starts to emerge out of a, a, a pandemic crisis such as this. So libertarians will uh, bristle, as you put it, against restrictions in freedom, uh, and they will bristle against someone like um, telling them what to do in their language. Others, I think, as you understandably put it, uh, would take a very different view. They would want government to step in uh, and ensure that they are protected. They would, I think, correctly see government as being having as its primary job the responsibility to protect people from uh, a threat such as uh, COVID-19. So I think what it brings into sharp focus is how people's ideological biases towards the role of the state will play out in something like this. Uh, of course, for politicians, someone like Lamini Zuma or Ebrahim Patel, uh, people who are, I think, very comfortable with the idea that the government uh, and the state should play a, a, a prominent and centralist kind of controlling role in, in, in running the economy, even in running people's lives. Um, I think it, 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 it reveals itself very clearly in the way they have adopted their position and taken up their very considerable responsibilities during uh, this crisis. Um, they have to deliver. That's the bottom line in all of this. And as uh, Dr. Mbeti put it earlier, people will, in the end, assess this government as to whether it can overcome its inherent failings, the, the weaknesses in state infrastructure that yes. have emerged in the last uh, 10 years. I, I guess what we want is a bit of a response like the FIFA 2010 response, where government, perhaps um, uh, propelled by the kind of commanding force of FIFA itself as an organization and the commercial realities that come with that, stepped up and delivered a, a first-class World Cup. We need a sort of a similar infrastructural 
focused and, and high-level delivery response in this case. And I think, the, the obviously, now, the next few weeks, the, the attention is going to be very much on whether the hospital system is up to the job, whether the test, uh, track, and isolate um, strategy can be delivered in practice. Uh, and Zueli Makize is uh, positioned to, to emerge from this as a hero if he gets that right. Uh, he could be one of the big winners politically from this whole uh, crisis. Thank you very much to my guest, Dr. Sitembile Mbete from the University of Pretoria and to Professor Richard Callan from the University of Cape Town. Fascinating insights from both of you. Thanks for joining me on Beyond Corona. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.